you know, I say a lot of things that people hate in the field. So when I say blunt talk, blunt on a borderline sometimes uh, infuriating. But I see the field running into a giant train wreck. And that is not what everyone wants to hear. We have a huge problem. What's up, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Artists of Data Science podcast. My goal with this podcast is to share the stories and journeys of the thought leaders in data science, the artists who are creating value for our field through the content they're creating, the work they're doing, and the positive impact they're having within their organizations, industries, society, and the art of data science as a whole. I can't even begin to express how excited I am that you're joining me today. My name is Harpreet Sohota, and I'll be your host as we talk to some of the most amazing people in data science. Today's episode is brought to you by Data Science Dream Job. If you're wondering what it takes to break into the field of data science, check out dsdj.co forward slash artists with an S for an invitation to a free webinar where we'll give you tips on how to land your first job in data science. I've also got a free open mastermind Slack community called the Artists of Data Science Loft that I encourage everyone listening to join. I'll make myself available to you for questions on all things data science and keep you posted on the bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check that out at artofdatascienceloft.slack.com. Community is super important and I'm hoping you guys will join the community where we can keep each other motivated, keep each other in the loop on what's going on with our own journeys so that we can learn, grow, and get better together. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode and don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, love, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is an engineer who loves solving problems just as much as he loves sharing his knowledge on applied machine learning and educating business leaders on its value. He's an applied data scientist and machine learning practitioner who has been involved in the world of technology for over two decades, both in hands-on and leadership roles. In the last decade, he's been a leader in the space, teaching companies how to build machine learning capabilities and integrating those new technologies into their businesses, having brought products to market with annual revenues in the hundreds of millions of He's known for his blunt talk on machine learning, biases, and information security, as well as his musings on how to hire talent, how to run projects, how to break into the field, and how to make machine learning profitable. He's been published on mainstream platforms such as Fast Company, Silicon Republic, KD Nuggets, and Open Data Science. Since 2015, he's been recognized as a top voice and expert in data science and machine learning, having spoken at conferences, business seminars, and academia for the better part of the last decade. He served in roles from team lead to senior principal to chief data scientist and is founder of V Squared Machine Learning Consulting. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, one of LinkedIn's top voices for data science in 2019, Vin Vashista. Vin, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. And I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. So, so let's go ahead and get into it. I want to first start off by talking about um, how you first heard of data science and what drew you into the field. 
you know, it's funny when I started data science, I, I actually called myself something else because I didn't know what data science was. <laughs> it was back in about 2011. Just getting out of, I was in kind of this transitional phase from being a, a, a software development leader, kind of going into the strategy side and the product management side, and was using data on a regular basis to drive strategy, drive decisions, understand customers. And I kind of fell into data science. Like I said, I had no idea that there was this rich field out there because it really hadn't gotten a lot of traction. There weren't a lot of people talking about data science. They were just saying big data. We're still talking about business intelligence and, and those sorts of things. And so the way I got into the field was really convincing a lot of companies to hire me to do uh, you know, this sort of data science thing that didn't have a name yet, then running into others from Google, from Facebook, from other large companies that were starting to work on big data, data science, sort of the evolution of finding all of the tools that were out there, working with other groups that were creating new tools. And it's sort of, like I said, it was this evolutionary process where in about 2012, 2013, I found out, oh, I'm a data scientist. And so, you know, it really was one of those things. I woke up one morning a data scientist. That's pretty interesting, man. So having having started from a time, you know, when data science wasn't really a buzzword or, or a, you know, a hot phrase or, or hyped up, where do you see the field headed in the next two to five years? You know, I say a lot of things that people hate in the field. So when I say blunt talk, blunt on a borderline, sometimes uh, infuriating. But I see the field running into a giant train wreck. And that is not what everyone wants to hear. We have a huge problem right now around sort of the use of machine learning as analytics. And so right now we are using a whole lot of very, very complex math and a whole lot of high-end compute to create analytics. These are models which do not generalize well to new data and new circumstances. COVID is a great example. You're seeing all sorts of models right now disintegrate because they do not generalize very well to novel situations. They've truly not learned anything. They're, they're simply parroting. And you can see the quality models now standing out from those uh, which are really analytics true because the quality models aren't performing perfectly I mean, no one could have foreseen this. And no model really has the data to understand and generalize to this. And so while we're seeing the limitations of models, we're actually seeing which ones are successful. Now. And that's why I think that as a field, we're on our way to a train wreck because we have invested a lot of money saying these machine learning algorithms are robust and they've actually learned something. And in times like this, we truly reveal the limitations of machine learning. And we have to come to a sort of reckoning where we say, look, Machine learning has practical applications, but only if you understand what it is you've built. You can use complex math to drive value in, in the pure analytics space. But when you brand it as something else, when you call it machine learning, you, you give it this extra sort of responsibility to generalize and to understand and to have actually learned so that it can apply that learning to novel situations. However, we are not doing that very well right now. And so we are seeing sort of the beginning of this train wreck where we separate out complex analytics from true machine learning. Wow, that is a very, very contrarian view and a very interesting take on, on what the future is for data science. Um, 
Thank you for sharing that. But in that vision of the future that you have, what do you think is going to separate great data scientists from merely good ones? You have to understand the limitations of the algorithms that you've implemented and the limitations of the data. Everyone makes decisions about both, but a truly great data scientist, and I wouldn't even call myself a truly great data scientist. I watch others who do this in ways that I would like to emulate. And I don't want to call anyone out, but there are some truly great data scientists out there running companies by themselves that run their own consulting companies. You look within Google, you look within Amazon, and you will find some truly amazing data scientists, machine learning data scientists who are conscious of not only what the limitations of their data are, but also what the limitations of their specific approach of the algorithms and the deep learning models that they've created. They all have limitations and you make decisions consciously about what limitations you build into your models. And the great data scientists, what you really want to aspire to and what I aspire to becoming is someone who is better at understanding the limitations and architecting solutions that minimize sort of the adverse effects of some of those limitations until we've built better models, until we have built more of a, a smarter machine learning, which truly understands sort of the, the rough edges of causal relationships. Until we've built that and we have a sort of smarter framework and approaches that we can use, the smartest things that we can do and the most uh, useful things that we can do really relate to understanding limitations and crafting solutions so that those limitations have the smallest impact possible. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, like um, understanding limitations and how to work within those limitations, I think takes a fair bit of creativity. And I, I like what you mentioned there, how you are taking from other data scientists out there in the industry, kind of taking or learning from them rather. To me, creativity kind of feels like taking different bits from other people and synthesizing it to your own problem statement, but still coloring within the lines and limitations of your, of your own problem statement. Um, I was wondering what role does being creative and curious play in being successful as a data scientist? And how can someone who doesn't see themselves as creative be creative? In my opinion, creativity and, and my experience, I should say, my opinions really shaped by all of the things that have happened over the last 10 years. Uh, creativity is a result of failure, repeated failure and admission of those failures. And I, I have repeatedly found myself overestimating my capabilities for the first maybe three years is my, of my career in data science. And that was the best thing I could have done is to push the limits of what I could do and then begin to honestly assess sort of in a post-mortem way, what is it that I've built? What have I created? How, what were the limitations of those things I had done and how am I going to get better? And you're right. It's a synthesis of not only your own personal experience, what's worked and being very honest about what hasn't worked, 
but it's also looking at people who are doing uh, sort of more than research, but building applied solutions, building the sorts of models that get into production and provide value to a business and looking at what worked and what didn't, why did it take longer than it should have? That's really what creativity is, is it's recognizing the flaw and being relentless about finding the flaws and finding ways to pick apart what's been done in the past, being skeptical and almost, you know, being adversarial. That has a totally different meaning in our field, being adversarial to your own work and to the work of others. And at the same time, welcoming in new ideas with that same sort of adversarial approach to it, looking at it and saying, no, that's wrong. I don't like that. It, it doesn't feel proven enough. It doesn't feel like it works well enough. I feel like I'm doing too much work to get too little accuracy. I feel like the accuracy isn't providing business value. You know, it's attacking the way that you think and consistently reforming it to be something that's practical and more useful. It's, it's more real and tangible. That's our creativity. I love that, man. That really resonated with me. I've got like chills going on right now. I was talking to <laughs> talking to a junior colleague of mine earlier today, actually. Um, and I was really communicating that same sentiment that you're saying. It's, you know, what makes a great data scientist is not a PhD. It's not, it's not how many courses you've taken. It's the ability to really, like you say, be adversarial. Step step outside of what you've done and question yourself. Like, hey, was this actually right? Am I am I just seeing something that that, that is just a fluke? Did I actually do this thing right? Like having that type of, of self-criticism, I think, is crucial. Speaking of like PhDs and master's programs and all that, you know, most up-and-coming data scientists tend to focus primarily on the hard technical skills and they think that's what's gonna separate them from from the rest of the crowd. But what are some soft skills that candidates are missing that are really going to separate them from their competition? Communication, uh, overwhelmingly communication. If you cannot talk to people outside of the machine learning organization, you cannot explain and instill value of machine learning into every facet of the business. If it is singularly focused, if it cannot you know, get past its use as a cost saver, if it cannot get past its use in a single feature or supporting a specific part of a product, if it cannot become part of a company, it will fail to achieve its maximum impact. And so communication for a data scientist is what gets an individual beyond just being a code monkey. It gets them past sort of that, uh, that pigeonhole of staring at the screen, looking at the data, watching the, the ticker tape of accuracy and metrics at the bottom of the screen. You have to go beyond that and talk to users and talk to people who don't really understand machine learning and what the use cases for machine learning are. It is all about getting outside of the lab and getting into the field. And without communication, there are so many barriers in front of you to do that. No one wants you to talk to customers if they're scared of what you're going to say. No one wants you to talk to the C-suite if they're like, oh God, I don't know what he's going to say. <laughs> no, keep him in the closet over there. Put him back, lock the closet, lock him in there. It's, it's really, and it's funny, you see women excelling here because there is so much more of a focus on communication skills sort of as an advantage builder for everyone trying to get into the field. So as we get more women into the field, 
you will see more of this expert communication coming out. They're sort of leading the way. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really figured out what the cause behind this is. I'm still trying to understand it. But it seems like women are leading us in communication across uh, sort of technology fields, but in machine learning and cybersecurity especially. Some of the best communicators and some of the people who are doing the best job of teaching are women in machine learning, data science, and information security. I follow now more women in those fields than I do men. And it's interesting how much better a lot of women are at communicating than men are. Like I said, I haven't figured out where that comes from, but it seems like the focus is more. And this is, again, a great pitch for diversity teams. It feels like the more diverse the team, the better the communication becomes. And a lot of time, women are driving that because they understand for some reason better than guys do that there is this need to communicate. And, and this, this is a, a skill that's necessary. And again, I can't explain why, but it, it really does seem like women are doing a better job. And I, I can give specific examples of, you know, all the way back to, uh, I'm thinking of people who I watched in the field eight years ago who really communicated well enough that I began to understand the field itself better, that I began to understand how I could communicate better with other people outside of the field. It was, like I said, it was an interesting sort of anecdotal piece of the field to see that diversity created better communication, put a better com- emphasis on communication. And okay. so if you're talking about soft skills, really look at communication and really look at building a diverse team because a lot of that diversity leads to better communication, not only inside of the team, but externally. 100% agree with that, man. Communication is so key. I was talking to a colleague of mine. They sent me to, to an offsite office talking with some stakeholders that were going to be the main consumers of, of this product I was building out. And it really just felt like as soon as they got to know me, understand me and trust me and trust the way I was communicating what I was doing, that they were able to garner more trust, not only in me, but in the product that I was creating for them. So yeah, communication is definitely key. And just to add on, I was thinking of Carla Gentry. I'm sorry. That was the name I forgot earlier on. So I was doing some research and I came across, I think it was a blog post that you had written about the growth mindset. I was wondering if you could talk to us about how you first got introduced to the concept of growth mindset and why it's important to understand for people who are in the job search. It's really a big piece of the strategy world is mindset. It's understanding how a company can create different pieces of strategy. One of those pieces of strategy is the mindset of the company and understanding that a mindset has to be company-wide. And um, Microsoft did this really well when they branded themselves. They, They created a challenger mindset. And they decided that they were going to admit the truth. They were no longer the incumbent. They were no longer at the top of the heap. And in order to regain dominance, they had to adopt a challenger mindset. They did an excellent job. And so a growth mindset can help in the same way. It's a strategic practice at companies. But for an individual, a growth mindset sets the tone for their entire career. Are you someone who thinks you can continually learn? and improve? Or are you someone who gets to a plateau and says, this is all there is to know, therefore I know it all. And that can be a limiting factor in your career. To believe that there is always something left to learn means you're continually reading, you're continually learning and improving your skills, you're continually getting better. 
to believe that there is enough for everyone, abundance, is to believe that for us to win, there is an outcome where you benefit and I benefit. There is not sort of this zero-sum game where in order for me to win, you must lose or someone else must lose. And this is, and again, this goes back again to communication. If you are of a growth mindset, you not only want to teach, you want to learn. And those two pieces of communication are essential. It, it will mean that you'll stop talking. And I'm in one of those places in my career where I've learned the importance of shutting up. And sort of, it's interesting. I'm learning more than I ever have before now that I'm kind of saying, okay, I need to shut up. I need to amplify smarter people than I am. And, I need to, and this is growth. This is, instead of reaching a plateau and saying, I am at the top of the heap, I'm done. You know, I'm coming back to, I'm an imbecile. I need to learn again. I need to, I need to sort of refresh my learning and understanding. I need to look, things like diversity have really come to the front of my mind over the last couple of years. And I look back over my career and I say, well, what could have been better if I had worked better with more diverse teams, what could have been better? And again, it's back to that whole picking apart every piece of what you're doing and saying, is this really work? And diversity is one of the things that I keep coming back to because I see sort of the, the poison that it can introduce to data sets. And we're not just talking about uh, you know discrimination against particular classes or, or women, but really looking at we excluded something from this data set. It doesn't necessarily have to be discriminatory because a lot of times when you talk about diversity, you immediately come to the opposite of that. But I think that sort of this inclusiveness is part of the abundance and part of the growth mindset is beginning to listen to more voices, to include more in our data sets. You can see growth and abundance really have so many places that they, they can help your career and sort of help you pick apart and do what I was talking about. What went wrong? What could have been better? What would the team have looked like if I had included this person in it? What would the data set have looked like if I had considered more cases? Had I gathered more data? Had I took samples differently? Again, this is growth. This is continuing to look back and say, I can improve. I can do better. That's awesome, man. Very beautifully put. I appreciate that. Kind of shifting gears a little bit here. Could you talk to us about how an up-and-coming data scientist can tie a particular ability or a particular requirement with a business need, specifically in, in cases where one doesn't have any work experience to speak of? I did a little research on this. This has been kind of an obsession of mine for four years, more than four years. Well, it's been a long time. Trying to tie capabilities to business outcome and business strategy to capability. Because those are really the tie between strategy and execution and sort of that execution piece coming back around and driving the next round of strategy. What does an individual, how do they play into that whole uh, sort of circle, uh, business cycles? And a lot of understanding how capabilities tie directly to business value is making that connection to the actual, the actual driver, the actual piece that you are implementing from the strategy standpoint. And so it takes a lot of understanding. And this is where business acumen fits in to the, the machine learning and data science skill set. If you don't understand the business, if you don't understand the use case, if you don't understand the user, the product, it's a holistic view. 
if you add pieces of that, your solution will be imperfect. We always have imperfections, but we can have some very significant flaws that come from not understanding how your capabilities and how your models contribute to the bigger picture, to the larger goal of the company. And so if you are an up-and-coming data scientist with no experience, you are actually in a better place than most data scientists and machine learning engineers because in oftentimes, again, it's that silo. It is that lack of external communication. It is the lack of interaction with the outside world. And again, talking about diversity, not just you know the traditional definition of diversity, but diverse data sets, diverse views, sort of getting diverse requirements. If you can, as an aspiring data scientist and somebody with no experience, if you can kind of integrate that into your approach and into what you do every day, you will be better in interviews. You will be better in the business. You'll create more value because you can understand the bigger picture. You can understand not only how your talents fit, but how you can apply them in order to create business value. And that's a huge layer. That's really interesting, man. Thank you for that. Um, could you share some tips or words of encouragement for our listeners who've got a couple of decades, let's say 10 to 20 years of traditional, and I'm putting traditional in air quotes here, uh, traditional IT experience under the belt who are now trying to break into data science. What challenges do you foresee them facing and how can they overcome some of those challenges? They built things that have to work. If you're in IT right now, if you're in software development, if you're in infrastructure, if you're in one of those technical engineering roles, you've actually had to build things. They've actually had to work. And if they didn't, you got fired. <laughs> That's That experience right there is massive because so much of what is done is hypothetical. It gets into production and it looks nothing like what it was to begin with because it had to be shaped and molded and, and slammed into place and, and everything else. And really what I can say is... Do not worry about these barriers to entry. If you understand linear algebra, amazing, great. You will have a deeper comprehension of the models you put into production, and that's what you need. But you don't have to start there. You have to start by building things that make it into production and work and provide value. And as a traditional IT person, in any role, any technical role, you've had to deliver and you've gotten, you know, especially if you've done this for 10 or 20 years, you've had to deliver your whole career. And if it didn't work, it you were working somewhere else the next week. You, you were not there anymore at that seat. And so that is so relevant to making data science and machine learning really work for an organization. But it's often a disconnect that people in my field, me included in some cases, have had. Where, you know, the shiny object became more important than the dollars that it drove. That's very good insight. And I'm sure a lot of people out there are going to find some encouragement from that statement. Uh, you mentioned barriers to entry. I was wondering what advice or insight you could share with people breaking into the field who are looking at these job postings. Some that seemingly want the abilities of an entire team wrapped up in one person, and they end up feeling dejected or even discouraged from applying. One of the last posts that I wrote talked about troll jobs. And I think a lot of those jobs that you're talking about, the ones where you look at it and go, that's, wait, you want 
12 years of experience with a technology that's eight years old. Well, that's cool. You see that a lot. And those are trolls. Those aren't real jobs. There's nothing behind that job. If you were the most successful person on earth in data science and you decided on a lark to apply for them, because believe me, I've done this a couple of times. You find out on the other end, they'll say something you know, ridiculous at the end of the process. Like, oh, uh, you need to work for this much an hour. It's, it's so below what a normal data scientist hourly rate is that you go, okay, you weren't really trying to hire us, were you? And so we have to avoid the trolls. And as soon as you start looking at legitimate job postings, you, you begin to get a whole lot more encouraged by the fact that companies like Google and Facebook are dropping those barriers to entry. And again, especially if you are someone who is underrepresented in data science, if you sit down in an interview and you don't at least have some representation, you don't have someone that looks like you or someone who speaks like you or someone who is from your background. If there isn't somebody like that in the interview, just get up and walk out because those teams are toxic. And we need to, those teams either need to change and change the requirements and changing their thinking and changing the way they hire. I mean, if you sit down at a table with six PhDs and you have a master's, just get up and walk away. That is not the right table for you to be at. That's too similar. If everyone is hiring themselves over and over again, it's not a team you want to work for. And you won't find that. So always look for teams where at least one or two people are like, because those are the teams that have created sort of the diverse environment, and not just the traditional sense of diverse, diverse educational backgrounds, diverse experience sets. It, really, diversity means so much more than it used to. And when you come into data science, we have to accept the fact that there is no one path. And so ignoring the troll jobs and looking for teams where you see someone and you say, that, that, that's me in five years, or that's very, very similar to me right now, those are the teams you want to be a part of. And it's harder to find those. So you'll find far fewer of them. But when you do find them, they'll be more meaningful as far as your prospects for getting into the field. They'll be a whole lot easier, lower barriers to entry. What's up, artists? Check out our free open mastermind Slack channel, the Artists of Data Science Loft at artofdatascienceloft.slack.com. I'll keep you posted on the bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting, and it's a great environment and community for all of us to talk all things data science. Look forward to seeing you there. Kind of on that same uh, barrier to entry type of wave, what are some challenges that a notebook, quote unquote, notebook data scientist uh, face when it comes time to productionalize a model? And do you have any tips for them to, to overcome those hurdles? I get hate every time I say this, but learn Java. It's just, I mean, please learn Java or C, C++, learn, please do not just be a Python developer. Python's amazing. R is amazing. They make life so easy and all of these tools are, are truly amazing. And I think what the community has done is incredible over the last five years. You look at tools that have been created and then just given away for free. There is no other place where this is happening in the same way, except for cybersecurity. Cybersecurity has got a lot of overlaps with data science in that way of the, the sharing and spreading information freely. But they're wonderful. However, you're going to be creating custom models. If you are doing import from on a daily basis, 
that has to be a red flag because a business which creates a model which is as simple for, as import from on a generic data set, a data set which isn't distinct in some way, shape, or form from data anyone else can get, are you truly adding business value? And so I would say you have to look at what it takes to production, to get the path to production. What does it take to productize a model? And if you don't understand the core technologies, you know, sometimes it's C-sharp, sometimes it's C++. I mean, sometimes you're getting down to the hardware level, uh, but that's not always necessary. Sometimes it's Java, but under the covers, there's always a conversion. And data scientists don't always need to be part of that conversion. However, they need to understand that conversion. And in cases where they must create a highly customizable model, they need to be able to get into the weeds with the people who will be implementing it. Because if the two teams, again, communication, the two teams don't talk to each other using common language. And a lot of time that common language is the, sort of the, the development language or the environment or so on. If you can't speak in common terms, it's hard to get something into production in the way that you intended it to get there. A lot of times it loses most of its value in translation. And instead of the engineering team and the supporting teams becoming enablers, they become barriers because they're given this black box. They don't understand what it is. And they just make it work in the way that they think it should work. Wow, that's really valuable advice. So if you've already mastered, let's say, Python or have comfortable proficiency in Python and you're looking for that new challenge when it comes to programming, then definitely go for Java. Yep. I like Java. Awesome. C-sharp, I'm not going to offend the C-sharp folks. I started it myself. I love C-sharp. So mm. Don't hate me, Windows guys. I'm at a Windows shop myself and I do everything yeah, in don't. Python, but they, yeah. they use C-sharp. Uh, at my company. So I, I think I'll definitely put in the effort now to, to learn that after hearing this from you. Um, it's it's worth it. And it's so easy to pick up. Yeah. I think programming is just kind of a mindset. Once you know how to program in one language, it's not too much of a stretch to learn another one because it's really just a mindset, a way of thinking through something. And if you're logical, you should be able to, to take what you've learned in Python and draw parallels to another language pretty easily. Yeah, and if you work with an engineering team, I mean, I've seen machine learning models in Python where there were two comments in several thousand lines of code. And if you do that in a traditional engineering team, you know, an ax murderer will come to your house and just end your career as a developer. It's, it's it, you, you learn structure in a way that you don't as a data scientist. And so it's worth doing. I mean, spend some time with the development team. It, it's a hundred percent worth it. Good comment on comments because when I'm reviewing GitHub uh, profiles for, you know, whatever job set I've, I've, I'm interviewing for. First thing I look for when I review a candidate's profile is if they have documented and commented their code. Um, if not, that's an indication to me that this guy's going to be a freaking nightmare to work with. <laughs> <laughs> so true. That's why I yeah. say the whole axe murderer things. Yeah. You know, there's the, the meme that goes around, you know, comment your code like the person who's going to replace you or maintain it as an axe murderer and they know where you live. <laughs> uh, so speaking of like technologies and tech stacks, what cloud technology should people pick up prior to breaking into the field? Or is this something they should even focus on if they're just looking to land their first role? Again, with all love and respect for the Microsoft world, which is where I came from, and we'll never forget what they did for me, Amazon, 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 Amazon. <laughs> you know, Google's infrastructure is amazing too. Microsoft's infrastructure and cloud infrastructure is amazing. 
I, I love both of them, but Amazon just so ubiquitous, so ubiquitous that it, it's, it's almost a must have. It, it really has become sort of everyone's go-to. Docker is another one to, to sort of slap on together. Amazon and Docker together, just being able to build up environments, you know, from a DevOps perspective, if you have that minimal understanding of Amazon, the Amazon cloud environment and using Docker to, to spin up environments and quickly build environments in the cloud, if you know those two, you're pretty much good. So before we jump into our lightning round here, um, I want to ask this final question. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? You, you can legitimately come from anywhere. I mean, I was, uh, during college, I was installing servers, crimping cables. I, I was plugging stuff in and unplugging things. You know, I was doing the simplest things possible. I spent time in retail, you know, to get myself through school. You can get in this field from anywhere. So let's go ahead and jump into our lightning round. Question one, I, you can you can do a contrarian point of view here as well. It's okay. Python or R? Java. <laughs> there you go, man. <laughs> Option three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's always a third door. Uh, so what's your, what's your data science superpower? Ooh, I forgot. That's a good question. Data science superpower is being obvious. It sounds like a stupid superpower. But every once in a while, just saying something obvious or doing something obvious, a lot of times I use the simplest possible model and it gives me the simplest possible result. And I say, well, you know, here's what the model says. And everyone goes, why didn't we think of that? And those are powerful insights. I provided value because we're not stubbing our toe anymore. So I, I think Captain Obvious, if I was a superhero in, in data science, I think data science is Captain Obvious. Yeah, there's definitely elegance and parsimony. Um, what would you say is, I mean, this is without context, but what would you say is your favorite algorithm for regression and your favorite algorithm for classification? Oh God, I don't have one. I think if you start saying I have a favorite one or a go-to one, ah, things fall apart there. So I yeah. no, no favorites. Never, All right. never, 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 never no favorites. There you go. All right. So what's the number one book you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Uh, Thinking in Bets was what got me started. It is it, it is a book about poker, but it's not about poker. It's the handbook for data science, and it's disguised so nicely, and it's so well told. Thinking in Bets. Dog, that book is fucking amazing. That book changed yes. my life. That Bayesian psychology, like just, yep. oh my God, that book yep. really changed my life, dude. Because... Um, I mean, I, I read it at a point where I was trying to transition jobs and, you know, I had interviews coming in and I would always just get pumped up and hyped up for a particular outcome for an interview. But then once I started thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, you know, based on the situation, based on the context, this interview probably has a 5% probability of resulting in a job offer. This interview probably has like a 15, 20% chance of, of resulting in a job offer. It just made quelled the anxiety i think a little bit but yeah that book is super powerful man great great yeah, book pot odds is life pot odds yeah, is life <laughs> yeah so i bet you're out there crushing it at the poker tables in reno my only bit of advice for a casino is if you see somebody who does machine learning don't let them in <laughs> awesome. close the door lock it get, get your two biggest security guards to tell me to get out <laughs> yeah so certifications or self-study uh, both. I don't know. Not both. What works? I mean, what you kind of said it thinking in bets, you know, 
And it's kind of an offshoot of thinking in bets. Don't play to your weaknesses. Play to your strengths. You know, when you look at a particular course of action, self-study or certificate, think to yourself, what is the probability that this is going to lead me to something better? And part of that equation is how well do you do it and how much you get out of it. And if you don't do it well, if it doesn't play to your strengths, don't do it. Don't worry about the stuff that you don't do well. Concentrate on the stuff that you that you do well and, and that you don't have to put a lot of effort into improving. And so that really will answer your certification of self-study. Some certifications you're going to look at and go, oh, I'll ace that. Yeah, definitely do it. You're going to look at some self-study materials and go, oh, I can learn that. Do it. What motivates you? Ooh, a lot of things motivate me. I've been finding, you know, it's interesting. This COVID thing is interesting. It's terrible. I feel horrible for everyone who's impacted by it, but I think it's impacting all of us. And what's motivating me, it's been a long two weeks. What motivated me two weeks ago, I would say, was seeing something of value get to production, seeing something tangible, something being built, something that was you know, sort of recognizes value. I hate saying that because it's an external motivation rather than an internal motivation. But now two weeks later, the world's changed. What motivates me now is different and I'm still coming to terms with it. I don't want to do a lot of the things that I used to do, sort of the grinding kind of work. I want to do things that help more, that are more meaningful to more people. And I'm less concerned about, you know, helping the 95%, more concerned about helping the people who I can bring the most impact to and helping the companies that I can bring the most impact to. And I, I think that's what's changed over the last two weeks for me is looking more at outcomes in a way that are, are different. And so being more internally motivated by the potential that I could make a huge difference for a company or that I could teach a group of people something important. And I, it's a big change. And like I said, it's been a long two weeks. Yeah, I man. think it's been a long two weeks for all of us. That's awesome. Man. That's very, very eloquently put there. Um, I know we're kind of off topic here a little bit, but what do you think is going to be the biggest societal impact from, from all the stuff that we're seeing with COVID? Ooh. Another thing I've been thinking about for two weeks, it, it you know, and I, my phone started ringing at the beginning of February and I knew something was going on. I didn't understand it was COVID. I mean, I was really, uh, you know, I guess blinded by uh, what I was doing and pigeonholing into data and that sort of thing. I was blinded to COVID by what I was working on. But uh, I, like I said, I started getting the calls back in February and they've changed over the last six weeks. And I think we are fundamentally altering sort of the landscape of how we interact with technology, how much we trust technology, how we interact with each other, and how we trust each other. And there are some really dark roads we could go down. But I think the one hope we have right now is understanding each other in a better way, bringing each other together by listening to each other's stories, personalizing what everyone is going through. Those one-on-one stories are the things that we can connect about and realizing that what has happened has left people, a lot of people, without hope and without purpose. Those two are, are so closely linked. And our future has a lot to do with who and what we turn to going forward for hope and purpose. 
that's going to be the biggest change we see in six months and two years from now is we are now making completely different decisions about what we look to for hope and for purpose. And that's going to change the way that we interact with technology and the way that we trust technology. Very, very insightful. Thank you for that. Uh, speaking of connection, how can people connect with you? Oh, I'm simple. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter, uh, V underscore Vashishta. You can catch me on LinkedIn. Um, that's about the two easiest ways to connect with me. LinkedIn profile is my email. I mean, you can email me if you want to. I try to make myself accessible. Um, and it's interesting. Very few people reach out uh, aside from to say, hey, what's up? Or can we connect? I want to follow you. But I'm completely open to people that want to reach out and understand a little bit about where their journey is going. And companies that are confused right now, like I said, I've been getting a lot. Like I said, it started in February. I've been getting a lot of outreach from companies, particularly bigger companies. But I want the smaller businesses to know, I understand how bad this is for you. And startups especially. Startups and small businesses, reach out to me now. I'm happy to help. I'm not going to, you know, an hour phone call. Just just call me because we need to be there for each other right now. And if you have questions about machine learning or if you just have questions about how, it, you know, technology is going to change or, or how you could use technology to keep your business going, just reach out to me. Awesome, man. Yeah, I'll leave a link to your Twitter and your LinkedIn in the show notes. And for anyone who's listening, I will leave a link to the book, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Um, Excellent read. You guys should check it out. Ben, thank you so, so much for sharing your thoughts with me and taking time out of your schedule. I know there's so much here that a lot of people are going to learn a lot from. So I thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule and being here with me. Oh, thank you for having me on. This is a great conversation. I really liked it. like oh, this right more on. than I like most interviews, I'll be honest. <laughs> and, uh, I'm glad, man. Well, well, hopefully we'll be uh, able to have you back again at some time in the future, man. Sounds good.